Good evening. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 26, if you want to turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 26. Continuing our story, last week we talked about Nabal and David having this breaking point where he finally said, that's it, you know, I've, I've been pushed around. He came off of this just very sensitive time where he was generous, compassionate, gracious to Saul. He could have killed him, but he didn't. And then he has this time with Nabal where he's just like, okay, get the swords. Every last man who is a part of this man's household will die. And then we saw Abigail came and stopped him. And then it ended up marrying him. It worked out like that. So here in chapter 27, we see, we pick up really from where we left off a couple of chapters ago. In verse 1 it says, but David thought to himself, oops, I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 27. Chapter 26. We're going to do 27 too. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hikalah, which faces Jeshimon? Now, do you guys remember the Zephites? They were chapter 23. They were the same ones who thinked on David last time. Okay, so these are the same people. They're still on Saul's side. They're, they're going back and they're telling, hey, we see David again. He's still out here in the wilderness. So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph. That's why they were called the Ziphites. With his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search for David, Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hecla facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was laying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech, the Hittite, and Abishai, son of Zeruhi, Jaob's brother, man, these names scare me, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I will go, said Abishai. Abishai. I know his name. I just see it and I try and phonetically pronounce it and it's never right. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. So let's stop there. Saul had just a few chapters back had this time where he said, David, is that you, my son? I'm wrong. David, surely the Lord has anointed you. You will be king. I'm so sorry. And had left. Remember that? And there was this time of repentance. And so here it is happening again. So Saul's repentance was short-lived. It was a repentance that was momentary. It was an emotional time. But it wasn't a change of character. 
And really, that's what repentance is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be just a change of emotion. It's supposed to be a change of character. Saul's character hadn't changed. He was sorry, he was moved, but he was not changed. And so we see him again coming back after David, searching him, going to kill him. And this is the situation. Again, we see that David now is going after to find out. And it's interesting because David was proactive here. He sent scouts out. He, he wasn't just sitting by. In other words, from the time that Saul had left, he didn't let his guard down. Hey, someone says Saul's on the move. Where's Saul? Keep an eye. Because he knows the guy could be after me. And so he sends some scouts out. They find out where Saul's at. And here's taking place. They see Saul and Abner, the commander of the Lord's army there, all camped out and all circled around him. And this is the situation. In verse 8, Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. And so, oh, did I skip a verse? I did, huh? No, I didn't. I read seven. Okay, I did. I'm sorry. A little spacey here. So, Does this remind you of something? Wasn't this happening just two chapters ago, right? Same scenario. When Saul came into the cave and they said, oh, God has delivered us. He's delivered Saul into your hands. Take him, kill him. This is what we've been asking for. Again, it happens. Again, there's opportunity. And Abishai now says, David, I'll do it. I'll take care of it. I know you had a hard time last time. I'll do it. I don't have a hard time. I'll pin him to the ground with his own spear. But David said in verse 9 to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Or his time will come and he will die. Or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. And so here's the second chance. David is resolved to do the same thing. And this is showing the difference between Saul and how he was moved and was sorry for what he did. But then he's changed his mind. David was still steadfast. I am not going to kill this man. And I like his little dialogue here. He goes, hey, you know, I'm not going to kill him, but who knows, maybe the Lord himself will strike him down or his time will come or he'll die in battle or he'll perish. Hey, something else could happen. I don't have to be the one who kills him. Have you guys ever prayed that way? You know, you can't kill someone but you can pray that that the Lord deal with it. Lord, I can't kill him, but you know, there there could be a, a car accident. There could be something that could stop this. There are times when you are so desperate for a situation to change that those kinds of prayers enter my mind. I don't know about you. Where I think, oh man, God, just remove, and maybe it's not death. I think of people maybe who have been 
even in my children's life, and they're just, I can see they're having this influence on them, and I can't do anything. In fact, if I were to go in and say, hey, man, this person's a bad influence, it would just push my kids further away from me and closer probably to this person. And so I just pray, God, help them move to another state. Help them to just find another, you know, boyfriend or another whatever. I mean, just get them out of this situation. I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. It would be wrong for me to take action. But God, I pray that you take some action and do something. And so David's mind is thinking, God can deal with this. I'm going to trust God for this. And that's really the lesson, I think, for us. Can we trust God to deal with the circumstance even though we don't have to and have this kind of, well, if I just push and do this deed, I could change it. But the right thing to do is not to do that and to trust God. But what does that mean? That means I'm going to have to live on the run longer. That means it's going to be more uncomfortable for me. But you have to give David credit because... He is true to what he's done before. He, he, you have to admire him because of his resolve here. And it's an example for us. Let me ask you a question. Can you be merciful even when someone is in the wrong? If someone's doing you wrong, is it okay to be merciful to them? So, I mean, you can have mercy in the face of oppression. It can show. I'm not saying it shows every time. The Lord has times where he brings judgment. But we can be merciful in times of oppression. In fact, that's usually the time that it stands out the most. Did with Jesus. When he did not raise his hand against them, although they reviled him, he did not revile back. Instead, he entrusted himself, it says in First Peter 2, to him who judges justly. And so it's, it's an effort and it's a practice that we have to engage in, but we can show mercy in the face of oppression. Now, most of us aren't being hunted down by somebody, um, I would think. If you are, let us know. Um, but I think what we deal with are circumstances with people, confrontations with other people. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a coworker, where there's a confrontation and you have the ability to either react or be merciful. How are you going to respond in this way? What are you going to do? And so we see again that David has character here. He, he takes his time and he deals with this thing in the right way. So verse 12, so David took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Now that's interesting. David was sneaky, but the Lord helped in this situation. The Lord had put him in a deep sleep. That's the commentary. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army 
and to Abner, son of Ner, Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, Who are you who calls to the king? David said, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord the king? Someone came to destroy your lord the king. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? This is kind of comical, right? I mean, David, before he addresses Saul, he wants to make a point here to Abner. And remember, David is a mighty man of war. You know, Saul has slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. David is known for being a mighty warrior. And so now here is the the commander of Saul's army who's supposed to be guarding him. And David just confronts him and says, yeah, you're not very good. You're not good. You're not doing your job. When I had your job, I did it a lot better than that. You're blowing it, buddy. And so he he really jabs him here. He kind of sticks him and says, "Yeah, you shouldn't. You guys should die for what you've done." As he replies these things to him, verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and said, "Is that your voice, David, my son?" David replied, "Yes, it is, my lord, the king." And he added, "Why is my lord pursuing his servant?" What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my Lord, the king, listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, people have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have been driven. They have driven me today from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. I want to say in a pear tree because that's the only time I see partridge. And so here's David's response as Saul again confronts him. And then Saul answers him in verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today. But I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. David went on his way and Saul returned home. A few things different happen in this account. Saul actually invites David back. But David doesn't go back, which makes me want to ask a question. Is it possible to forgive someone and still not trust them? 
You can, right? <laughs> My wife says, yeah. <laughs> sure has. Been doing it for years. No. <laughs> Doug, go ahead. I know many times people have a, an idea that, you know, saying you're sorry is all that's necessary to make things better. You know, well, did, at least they said they're sorry. Well, but did they show change of character? If they apologize, we are to forgive them. But forgiveness does not mean that you accept the wrong that they've done or there shouldn't be consequences for the wrong that's been done. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity when he talks about forgiveness and what it means. Because it doesn't mean ignoring or forgetting what's happened. It means you want the better for that person. In other words, you're, you're not wanting for that person to get worse. You're wanting them to get better. If I were to rob a bank and murder someone and I repented, my repentance would probably be something like what I've done is wrong. I need to pay for my crime because that's the right thing to do. That would be the right thing for me. That would be justice. And so my heart would be broken for what I've done. I would apologize, but I need to pay the penalty for the crime. Jesus said that we are to love others as we love ourselves. So if someone else were in that shoe, in that, my shoes, and did that crime and killed someone, I could want forgiveness for them and still see that justice needs to be served, that they need to go to prison, they need to perhaps even die because that was the crime. But what I want is for them to be better. I want them to genuinely want to be better. That's forgiveness. That means I want—I don't want God's judgment for you. I want you to escape that judgment, but you still might have to pay for your crime. That's just justice. And there's a difference there because forgiveness doesn't mean, okay, what you did to me, oh, well, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, or you're sorry, so I forgive you, so I'll let you try it again. It doesn't mean you have to do that. And a lot of times Christians come into place, well, I forgave them, so I have to give them their job back. Or I forgave them, so I have to you know, do this. It doesn't mean you have to. It means you want them to get better and you want to do what you can to help them get better. But sometimes for them to get better means for you to hold them more accountable. And so it's not that easy and not that black and white. Sometimes forgiveness involves justice. And so David here is not out to kill Saul, but he's not going back. Even though Saul said, come on back. Saul might have meant it. He probably meant it last time, but who cares? You tried to kill me three times now, four times. Yeah, I, I don't trust you. Until I see the character change, this is how it is. And that's okay. Does that make anyone have any questions? <laughs> Well, I guess it all depends on how he feels moved. I mean, there's sometimes where we trust faith, trust God for situation, and then sometimes we could be presumptuous, you know, where we're presuming that God is going to do something, and God's saying, I didn't say I was going to do that. You know, God might say, that's stupid. Don't go to him. He's crazy. 
you know, and so God has to be the one who would direct him in that. If God were to give him, you know, a specific, I'm leading you to do this, then he would have to be obedient to God's leading. Um, but sometimes people move in ways that God isn't leading, and God is like, no, I didn't direct you there. Um, fortunately, God's real gracious, you know, in all those things. But, um, I mean, he had reason not to trust Saul, and I think that was probably the wiser thing to do. You know, I mean, some of David's words here strike so much of Jesus's words. You know, in verse 24, surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Matthew 7, 2, it says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured to you. And it's kind of that, you know, do to others what you would have them do to you. Well, that's what David's doing here. I wouldn't want someone to kill me, so I don't want to kill you, and I'm, I want God to show me the same regard that I have shown you, and I'm trusting God to do that. And so it's very much like what Jesus has said. I mean, he's really taking the words of Christ and kind of using those things. Now, this is the last time that Saul and David will see each other, Okay. We're, this is their last conversation, and this is their last meet, and it, it's tragic. It really is. It's a tragic one. When Saul says in verse 21, he says, Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. A lot of um, translations, they might say, have erred or I've made a mistake. What it literally means is I have gone astray. And I love that idea because I was supposed to live my life this way, but I am now living my life in a different way. I've gone astray. And that's really the definition of sin, is to miss the mark. It's to live less of the life that you are created to live. And this is a picture of that taking place. I have gone astray. And I just think those words are are powerful. Okay, we're going to jump into chapter 27. It's a short chapter, but there's some powerful things here. Um, Verse 1. But David thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. This verse really struck me, especially compared to verse 19 of the last chapter, where David says, don't let me die and have my blood not be in Israel. He he talked just now about, you know, they're wanting me to, to go and serve other gods. Let not, in verse 20, my blood fall on the ground far from the presence of the Lord. He's saying, I want to stay in Israel. But all of a sudden, it says, David thought to himself. Now, some translations, it says, thought in his heart. Okay, same thing. He is thinking to himself. You know, he seems to want this one thing, but all of a sudden, he starts thinking something else. And what we're going to see take place is David, by what he thinks, changes the direction of what he does. 
Proverbs 4.23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything we do flows from our heart, flows from those things. And so David has this little recollection in his heart, this little conversation with himself. And he says, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. That's his conversation. That's what he's saying to himself. That's his heart. Now, we know that that isn't true. But that's what he thought. And so what he did and how he acted was based on something that wasn't true, but it was true to him when he acted. Why? Because it was the thought of his heart. And from our hearts going to flow our actions. Jesus says, the abundance of the heart, um, the mouth speaks. I started thinking, what are some of the things that we say in our hearts? What are some of the things that we tell ourselves? Maybe it's things will never change. The way things are, it's never going to change. Maybe that's what you're saying to yourself. Or maybe you're saying it's hopeless. Or they'll never forgive me for this. Or maybe your, your conversation is, I can never love them again. What are the words you're saying? What are you direct, which direction are you setting your life out to do by that conversation? You see, because David's conversation, surely I'm going to die at the hand of Saul. It wasn't true, but it was the reason he did what he did. And the things that you do are the result of those conversations in your heart. So what are you saying? And how is it directing your life? And more importantly, what could you say? that could redirect your life? What if instead of, you know, things will never change, what if your conversation was, I'm going to make the difference. I'm going to be the change. What if your conversation was, I believe God is working now right here in this. What if you said that instead of it's hopeless? What if you said God is at work in them and in me and in this situation? What if your conversation was, I forgive you? Or your conversation was, I love you? If your conversation maybe was even, God loves me. How would that redirect your life? with the things that you say to yourself. See, because if you think and say to yourself, man, it's never going to get any better, guess what? Your disposition is going to be looking for how you can get out of there. 
Saul's going to kill me. What did he do? I got to get out of here. And so he reacted on what he told himself. And we live our lives like this. We have a conversation, and our conversation could be one of faith and trust and hope in God, or our conversation could be one of doubt and lacking in faith and seeing the circumstances without the revelation of God's presence there. And it makes all the difference in the world. And I don't know if you do this, but I can go from zero to 60 in a second in these conversations in my head. I can go from, man, this is not going to ever change, to God, you can do anything. I can do that in the same day. Or vice versa. I can do, God, you're so good. To, God, I don't deserve this. Half hour ago, you were fine. What happened? The conversation I started having changed. Pretty soon I was just talking to myself and I wasn't actually inquiring of God. It was just my voice. And so David thought to himself, one of these days, Saul's going to kill me. I'm going to be destroyed by the hand of Saul. And so then he answers himself based on something that isn't true, by the way. The best thing I can do to this thing that isn't actually going to happen is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Well, wait, you didn't want to go there, remember? You didn't want to to depart and, and leave and have your blood fall on other grounds, but now you're going to. Why? Because of the conversation I had in my head that Saul's going to destroy me. So the best thing I can do based on that conversation is go to the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. And so he had the conversation, he had the answer, and he acted. And it was all based on this thought. Isn't that amazing? That our lives can change direction just in that conversation we have. And that's what's happening here with David. So, verse 2. David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Ashish. Son of Moab, king of Gath. Now, do you guys remember him? Remember back in chapter 23, David acted like a a crazy man. I think it was 23. Where he went to Gath because he was running from Saul. And they said, isn't this the king? And he said, no, not the king. He's all spittle going down his beard and he was going crazy. They go, this guy's mad. Get him out of here. And he escaped. Well, he's going back and he's back there again. So he goes there with his 600 men. Verse 3, David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him. And David had his two wives, Ahinom of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. So he's right. He wasn't going to keep following him there. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? And so now David is going to him and he's saying, 
Let me stay in a city with you. Now, why is he going back and what's changed? What has happened from the last time where he had to act crazy to save his life to this time where he can ask for refuge? He's got 600 men with him. What else has changed in this dynamic from the last time? He's not acting mad. Why would the king welcome David now as opposed to last time? Yeah, him and Saul are against each other now. That's been taking place for a while. Remember last time they thought he was the king. Now it's obvious that him and Saul are in bad terms. And so the enemy of my enemy becomes my friend. And so that's what's taking place here. Yeah, David... He's a warrior and he's against Saul. I'm against Saul. This could work to my advantage. See? So now David comes to him with his little group and David says, hey, I don't want to stay near you. I'll just stay out in the outskirts, just trying to find some refuge here, exile from where I was. And so now that's why this conversation is taking place. That's why he can go to the king and plead for this place because of the change that has happened between him and Saul. In verse 6 it says, So on that day, Achish the son of Ziklag, and it has belonged to the king of Judah. So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the king of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. And so we know That means that this book was written sometime before Solomon's death um, because that's when there was a split and they lost this territory. So it's remained in that time. So this was written still in that time. And so a year and four months he lived there. It's interesting that there are no known psalms that came from David in this time. You know, we've been reading of different psalms throughout his fleeing and and escaping from Saul and in the wilderness, but at this time there is no account of any psalms being written by David. This is kind of a, a different part of his life. You guys ever been there where it's just kind of a dark season in your life? He's in Philistine territory. He's anointed to be the king of Israel, but he's not even in Israel. He's now with the enemy, so to speak, at least in their camp. But we're going to see his heart isn't in their camp. In verse 8, Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, From the ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Now, remember, the Amalekites were the ones Saul was supposed to wipe out, but he didn't. And so these people are still the enemies of Israel. And so David, I mean, this is who he is. He's a warrior. This is how he survives. He goes and he conquers and he takes the spoils. And so he's going to cities, but he's going to the cities that are enemies of Israel. With his band of 600 guys, these 
renegades that are just kind of going out there, these mercenaries really, they're taking these things from these camps. And whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he returned to Akish. What do you guys think about that? Any thoughts about David going to these cities, killing everybody and taking their stuff and coming back? You guys are okay with it? (laughs) It must be okay. It's in the Bible. He was killing the enemy, yeah. He was killing the enemy of Israel, which a lot of them were in Philistine territories. Um, Did he need to kill all the men and women? Why was he? We're going to see in a second. Why do you think he's killing everybody? Exactly, right? They're going to go tell him, hey, David's killing us, so he needs to science. So what David is doing is to get the stuff that he needs, he needs to kill the people so that they don't talk. Now, it's really hard for us to kind of set our Christian beliefs in this time. You know, the present Christian standards don't fit well at this time. And it's because, remember, at this time, there is constant tension and war going on. There are raids going back and forth. So this is a time of war. This isn't like, you know, this isn't the love your neighbor moments. Okay, this is war that's going on continually. But this is also incredible deception by David. The deception is used for his sake and to stay alive, which is what we're going to see right now. So when Achish, this is the king, asked, where did you go raiding today? Because he knows that's what David does. He's out looting different places. That's how he's getting the sheep. That's how he's building up his wealth and supplies. Where'd you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah and against the Negev of Jehermel, and against the Negev of Canaanites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was the practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Interesting. Just brutal. Harsh reality. As long as I'm living here undercover, exiled from Saul and him trying to kill me, as long as I'm hiding out here, I don't want to go against Israel, but I can't just live like this. So I'm going to kill, cover up, kill, cover up, kill, cover up. For a year and four months, this is how David lived. Think of how that plays on a person. Think of what that does when that's your life and that's exactly how you live. Verse 12, it says, Achish trusted David and said to him, he has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. That was how he thought. You thought it was wrong or it will be. What I think is interesting is that what David needed to do to stay alive for self-preservation in this situation 
And that self-preservation is a strong motive. It's a survival mentality. I've got no choices. This is what I have to do. And if we have to kill the women and all the men, probably the children, then that's what I have to do so that we can stay alive, so I can stay in this place because I, I can't go back. And that's his way of thinking. What he needed to do to stay alive, that self-preservation was his motivation. It was the same motivation that took place when he killed Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, so that he wouldn't be found out. That motivation ended up becoming something, that self-preservation that covered up his murdering one of his own. You see, this is a time of war. I can justify it here because we're at battle. They're the enemy of Israel. I can do this. But what's happening is there is an eroding taking place. And this is what happens to us. Even when it's in a cause that might have validity. I just read a staggering statistic in a book that I'm reading talking about the deaths that took place with the veterans in Afghanistan. And I forget all the statistic numbers and dates, but in a a year's time, there was like 917 American soldiers who, who died in Afghanistan. But there was also 816, I think it was, who came back home and committed suicide. And it's talking about the mindset that these people have to go in to go to war and to be so steadfast and focused on the task at hand when they come back, that is still a part of their lives and it destroys who they are. Their character gets eroded and it gets broken. And when they come back, they have a hard time adjusting because of where they found themselves when they were at war. And so David, and you know, he's the king and he's a man after God's own heart, but he is a man. And there's things that are happening. And after time, there becomes this tearing away And pretty soon we get numb to these things. And pretty soon the killing, I've I've killed my tens of thousands now. You think that doesn't have an effect on the soul of a human being. It does. And I thought it was interesting that the justification that David has here, he would also later use to justify his sin. And that can happen with us when we start to tear away at the foundation, the core of really who we are as human beings. And that's why David couldn't build the temple, because he was a man of blood. There was too much blood on his hands. God says, you can't. I know you've got a heart for me, but there's also blood on your hands. And so... That was the reason that God said, you can't build the temple. 
It can't come from someone who's done the things that you've done. Anyway, interesting things. Any thoughts or comments on this last portion? Our brain acts different when we're afraid. It goes into a different place. They have different terms for it. They have it the flight mode. They call it reptilian brain. It's this idea of your brain operates more from this back portion here. And so if, you know, a mountain lion is chasing you, you don't use the frontal lobe to think. You just use this back portion and says run. And you don't have time to figure things out. You just react. You know, and then it's there for a reason. It's there for protection. It's that way you don't worry about the, you know, rocks that you're stepping on. They don't hurt your feet when you're in fear for your life running from a mountain line. You can run faster, jump higher, whatever those things. Why? Because you're just in that kind of fear. I've got to do this. But what happens to us is we go into that mode whenever we start to panic. April 15th, taxes are here. Reptilian brain. You know, I got to run. I got to I gotta take care of these things. And you start to freak out and you start to get into this panic and your tunnel vision. But God wants us to be able to think. And that's where we would reason with him and acknowledge him in those things. And so that's kind of a, a biological way of looking how that affects us and how we react to those things. But definitely fear does that. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's just a dark part of his life. And, it, you know, the scripture just tells the story. It doesn't say, and David did wrong here. You know, it just tells the story. And then, you know, we have to interpret these things. And I love that about the scripture. It forces us to wrestle with the real life things. Um, but yeah, distrust, I mean, that's why it, it's almost like when people give into a different life, than what they know the scriptures tell us. You know, I know the scriptures tell me, say, you know, to be faithful to my wife and not to have an affair, to not commit adultery. If something in my mind says, yeah, but that's, God doesn't know that this is better, or I believe that this is better, and that would be distrusting what God has said, because I think this is a better thing for me to do. And so I'll do this because I don't trust that God really knew what was best. And I think this might be better, you know, whether it's the affair or the drugs or, or fill in the blanks, you know, this other lifestyle. I think this has more that will satisfy me. I don't think God has what I really need. And that's a distrust. And so we make those decisions because we don't trust that he actually did know what was right for us. Very interesting. Yes, Caroline. Oh yeah, he, he definitely wasn't going to do that. You know, he, he had it in his mind not to do that because of that. Those are his people. He was anointed. He, he still believed he was going to be king someday, but this is just what he had to do right now. I think that was in his mind somewhere. But, you know, I mean, we know God has promises for us, but sometimes we just like, yeah, I don't see him now. I don't see him today. And we can get in a funk, you know. I think it's interesting that out of all the time that is mentioned or that David is wandering, and we, we've talked about it, it could be up to 13 years 
this is the only time that is actually given a time amount. And I thought, like, this must have been the longest one year, four months. Because those other years, they just were there, but this one year and four months stood out. For some reason, it's accounted for here. This is just that part of his life. Interesting part. And I don't know. I don't know why, but it seems like my life follows those kinds of patterns. You know, <laughs> just being honest. I have these great moments of faith and being up high, and then I have these incredible lows. You know, it's like ah, oh, you know, I'm doing great. Oh man, I was a jerk. You know, it's kind of our season sometimes, and sometimes those times where we're just living in that place where we've, you know, extended ourselves, and I think acted more like God, um, I think sometimes that even surprises us, you know, and maybe that even frightens us, who knows, because we are called to live like that and more. You know, we're, we're called to live like Christ. And we see the glimpses of that in David, but I think sometimes the thought of that is pretty frightening to us. You know, it's like, I can't do that. I can't do that. It's too much for me. And it overwhelms us. And so we maybe subconsciously just back down and go back. I don't know. Someone should do a study on that. But any other thoughts? I'm busy. Well, nothing changes if nothing changes, you know. Any other thoughts, comments? Let's pray. Lord, I love how you speak in your scriptures to us, how you give us a story and it penetrates our souls. And it reveals our hearts and it exposes our weaknesses and it causes us to reflect on you and how we live. I love that you are speaking to us. And Lord, it's sometimes we don't discern it. Sometimes we don't recognize it. Sometimes we don't hear that voice, maybe because we think it's our own. Maybe it's that whisper in our soul that's calling us to more. Maybe it is that warning in our heart that is cautioning us not to take that step or to have that conversation. Maybe we interrupt your voice with our own and we say to ourselves because we are afraid that you're no longer talking and so we fill in for you. But God, you are speaking and you're always speaking. May we always be listening. May your words frame how we hear and listen. May your words help us to better hear your voice and not just our own. And Lord, I thank you again for this time. pray it would be enriching for us to meditate on these things and allow you to use them in our lives. And may we speak, Lord, those things of faith that are connected to you. May we set our course in the way of faith. We entrust ourselves to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.